All right, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5. Uh, it's been a tremendous blessing for me to be able to work through the Gospel of Mark. I've never gone verse by verse through it before. And uh, it's been a great learning process because I've learned more about Jesus. Um, I'm so thankful the Lord led me to, to start this series. I thought, boy, it would be great to spend several months just reflecting upon Jesus. And I know I've learned and grown, and, and I understand more of him now than I think I did when the series started. Uh, we see Jesus and his power and authority in Mark's gospel. As a matter of fact, uh, last Sunday night, um, we focused on Jesus' power. We said that there's a new emphasis that begins at the end of chapter 4 into chapter 5, and continues through, through the end of that chapter on Jesus' power, Jesus' authority. Um, in uh, last Sunday night, it was his, his power on display over the forces of nature, over the forces of nature. Maybe you weren't able to join us last Sunday night, or perhaps you forgot the sermon like I did. Um, but it's been, you know, for Jesus in the end of Mark chapter 4, it's been a long day for him of inter- instruction. And so he and his disciples get into a boat, Jesus falls asleep in the boat, and they start making their way across the Sea of Galilee. Well, we see in the text that other boats joined them as they went across this voyage. There's several boats going across the sea. Uh, But then a sudden violent storm comes, and it threatens Jesus and his disciples. As it threatens them until Jesus stands up and he speaks to the wind and the storm as if they are rational beings. And he commands them to stop. He actually, the text says, he rebukes the sea and the storm, and he says something like, muzzle it and be silent. Last week, we we made the observation that this is the exact same way Jesus had treated the demons in Mark chapter 1, muzzle it. He rebuked them and said, muzzle it. He does the same thing to the storm. And this not only worked with the demons, it worked with the storm. Jesus is powerful and authoritative over the storm. And the disciples who were riddled by fear all during the storm at the end of Mark 4, they turn in amazement. Their fear is overcome. They turn in amazement and wonder at the person and authority of Jesus. Well, that was last Sunday night. In our text this morning, in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we get another demonstration of the authority of Jesus. This time, it will be demonstrated over demons. We'll be reading here about how Mark, the gospel writer, portrays Simon Peter's eyewitness testimony about the events surrounding the healing of a demon-possessed man. Now, Jesus has already performed exorcisms throughout Mark chapter 1, throughout the first four chapters, I should say. Uh, But this one, I would agree with many of the commentators who say this one is by far the most powerful display of Jesus' authority and power. For this time, Jesus will heal a man from a host of demons, a horde of demons, in Gentile territory, an outside territory. Now, Mark chapter 5, Mark will demonstrate Jesus' authority I think uniquely. I, I've known this story from the time I was a small child, but I can't help but be more enthused about it today than I ever have been. We see Jesus' authority on display in many ways, but one of the things that first grabbed my attention this week is I was just reading my English Bible and just kind of 
trying to read over and over and over again. I notice that there's a, there's a verb that's repeated four times. I want you to see it in your Bible, for I'm going to frame the whole sermon around this. If you look down in Mark chapter 5 and verse 10, you see the word begged. Within this narrative, within this story, Mark frames everything around people begging or pleading with Jesus as a servant would to a master. And so in this text, we see of a man begging Jesus, a demoniac begging Jesus for something. You get out in your Bible in verse 12, and you see the same verb repeated, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. A little bit later on, down in verse 17, uh, when talking about some townspeople, some people who live in a community, it says, and they began to beg Jesus. And then again in verse 18, and as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with a demon begged him that he might go with him. In this section, there is, there is a whole lot of begging going on. Mark has everyone begging Jesus for something. And so we're going to look at this story in its four parts, and in each part, we will emphasize the authoritative response of Jesus to those who are pleading with him. And so if you're taking notes, you're following along in your Bible, we see the first part of the story I call the background and the setting, verses one through five. Let's look at it in our Bibles. It says, verse one, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he had wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. (coughs) No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Here Mark describes starts out by describing what happens when Jesus and his disciples disembark from the boat. They'd made it across the sea, the storm had been stilled. It's now peaceful, but as soon as they get out onto the land, we see what's, what's gonna occur here. Now, what we see in the background, the setting, is we see that this journey uh, takes them to the east side of the Sea of Galilee into Gentile territory, more specifically to a place of the Gerasenes, which... There's some controversy about it as to what location it is and what city or what region it is. Uh, But everyone agrees that it's to the east side of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile territory, down probably by the Decapolis, uh, a place with 10 cities. And as soon as Jesus' feet hit the shore, he's immediately confronted in this area by an unusual man. I like the translation a little bit later on, I think down in verses 10, 11, where he's, it's translated, this man is a demoniac. That is, he is part man, part demon, or a demon had filled him. He is filled with an unclean spirit. And so as a bit of background in verses two through five, we learn more about the man too. Not only did he have an unclean spirit or a demon in verse three, we see that this man lived among the tombs. First part of verse three, he lived among the tombs. <clears throat> Here Mark describes this man as having uh, the demons inflicting him so much that he's now living among cave tombs, a place which would be, of course, thought to be ceremonially unclean by the Jewish people. 
As you keep reading in the middle of verse 3 and then into verse 4, we see not only was he living among tombs, he was incredibly strong. He was incredibly strong. He had so much strength, the text says, that no amount of people and no amount or strength of restraint could work against him. One of the things that struck me in the text that I'd never seen in Mark's gospel, and it made me look for it this week, it's only other found in one other place, is there's a threefold negative statement in verses three and four. I mean, this is the, one of the most emphatic ways Mark could say this. You look in your Bible at verse three, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him later on, not even with a chain. And then at the very end of verse four, no one had the strength to subdue him. No one, not no one. No one could do this. Nothing could hold him down. He was hulkish in his strength. No shackles, as no feet restraints could hold him. No chains. Nothing could hold this man back. And then in verse five, we see this final description of him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was crying out and cutting himself with stones. This this man was so devastated by the demon that was inside of him, he was cutting himself continually with stones. He was bleeding from this man's torture of his physical bodies. And the words crying out are an extremely strong words. Could be translated, this man would would be yelling out. He'd be screaming or howling like an animal from the tombs. Imagine the stories the townspeople would tell about this man, or about their children would give. Man, don't go up to the caves. There is this terrible strong man there, and if you go, he will destroy you. You hear that? You hear him yelling? That's him. Don't go near. Don't go near. Well, that's the background of the story. And it leads to a confrontation between Jesus and the demoniac. In verses 6 through 13, I break this confrontation up into two stages. There's a word of transition in verse, between verses 10 and 11, beginning of verse 11. So I want to read the first stage of the confrontation between Jesus and the demoniac, verses 6 through 11. Look in your Bible at verse 6. It says, and when he saw Jesus from afar, this demoniac, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, that's Jesus, was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly, not to send them out of the country. So Jesus's initial interaction with the demoniac starts with him running up to Jesus. The text had already told him that as soon as Jesus put his feet on the shore, this man came to him. Verse six says that he ran and fell down before him. I, I was thinking this week, you know, I can't imagine the eyewitness testimony of Simon Peter. Can you imagine Simon Peter giving this account to people in Rome who'd be listening to him? I'm telling you, believe me. 
soon as Jesus got out of the boat, this insane, hawkish, wolverine-like, howling man charged at him. And he ran right up before him. And as soon as he got to him, he fell on his knees and he begged for mercy. What amazing story we have recorded for us. And Mark tells us specifically the demon fell down in front of Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly why this demoniac fell down in front of Jesus. It may be that it's worship, first worship, or a cry for help from the man. We don't know. I mean, all throughout here, you're going to see the, 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 the number changes from the man talking and the demons talking. And so there's some sort of mix going on here that's really hard to interpret. So it may be that the man is crying out for help, or I think better yet, it may be that this is mandated submission on a part of the demon. And so as I see this text, I think it's best to see this as an act that begins as an attack. The demons come running right up to Jesus, and it ends in a pile of submission at the, at the foot of Jesus. So as we continue to go through here, I want to just point out a few things about verses 7 through 9, I think, that can help us with the story. Uh, uh, first of all, I think you see the humble spirit of this fall, fallen demoniac on display in his request in verse 7. He basically asks, why are you concerned with my welfare? And then he asks Jesus, please do not torment me. I'll give you a few things here. I think that that request in verse 7 is actually coming from the demons, not the man himself. It's coming through the voice of the man. But in in other texts, in in parallel accounts, I see this request is coming from the the, the demons themselves through the man. Do not torment me. And the reason they're saying this is because in verse 8, Jesus had already told them, you need to come out of him. Come out of him, you unclean spirit. And so this leads Jesus to ask the man a question. He says, what is your name? And the answer, I've got no better word to describe it, the answer is creepy. It's creepy for two reasons. First, it's uh, creepy because the word legion is a Latin word that was used of a host or an army of Roman soldiers that consisted of approximately 6,000 soldiers. That was a legion. There may have been as many as 6,000 demons in this man. I think it's also creepy because of the grammar. And this is how I imagine the story. The man fallen in front of Jesus starts by saying, my name is Legion. And then the other demons join him in saying, we are many. This is creepy. As you get to this, you see, though, that this this horde of demons now prostrate before Jesus begins to beg him. And what do they say? They beg him that he will not send them out of the country. You see that at the end of verse 10? Don't send us out of the country. Don't torment us. Don't send us out of the country. And I have to say that that request was very difficult for me this week, trying to figure out. I think it's an unusual request, you know. Why would demons 
not want to send, you know, Jesus to send them out of the country. These like regional demons or something. These like country demons. Well, to answer this question, I went to the parallel accounts in Luke and Matthew. It's found in Luke 8 and Matthew 8. You could read it this week. In Luke 8, these same demons make this request in a little different way. They said, send us out, not out of the country, but they add to that, do not send us to the abyss. The abyss. The word for abyss is not used very often in the New Testament at all. It's used only here in the Gospels. It's used, or in that text in the Gospels, it's used though in Romans chapter 10. And there Paul uses it to describe the abode of the dead, where dead people go, the abyss, the underworld. It's also used in the book of Revelation. It's used there frequently. What I found this week as I studied it out and looked in the book of Revelation, the word abyss is used often to describe the pit, the bottomless pit that Satan and his demons will be cast into for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. And so I think that these demons might know a little bit of their future. Don't send us out of the region. The other text is don't send us out of the region. Don't send us to the abyss. Now in Matthew chapter 8, the demons also uh, ask not to be tormented by Jesus, but this phrase is added before the appointed time, before the appointed time. So it appears to me that the demons don't want to leave the region and be sent to the abyss, the place where the dead are, the place perhaps where Satan and the demons will be assigned in future judgment. Again, to me, it seems as if these demons know what their ultimate fate is going to be. But they just don't want it to happen yet. It's not the right time. So do not torment us. Do not send us out of the region. Well, this is Jesus' initial reaction with the man. They're begging him. With the demoniac, the the demons are begging him. That leads to the second stage in his interaction, starting in verse 11. Look at verses 11 through 13. It says, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, that's the demons, begged Jesus, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And so, Uh, This initial interaction between Jesus and demons ends with them pleading him, with him. And now the demons give more definition to their pleading, what they're pleading for. They notice that there are 2,000 pigs near them in the countryside. And so they plead with Jesus for permission to enter the pigs. Well, Jesus responds in the affirmative and says that they can go in. But as soon as they get into the pigs, The pigs lose their mind, they jump off the cliff, and they drown. Now, there are a few subjects in verses 11 through 13, I think, that we need to draw our attention to. First of all, I I, I just ask a bunch of questions when I come to text like this. One question I ask is, why pigs? Maybe I'm the only one in the entire room that would ask that question. Well, you got to listen for a while anyway. So, why pigs? I say, well, we don't know for sure. But it may be that the demons preferred inhabiting a body instead of just roaming about bodiless. So that seems really far-fetched. Well, I will say that there was a Jewish document called the Book of Tobit, 
where there, you know, there's a demon pleading not to be bodiless, but to be able to inhabit some sort of body. And if it's not a human body, as pigs will do. There is a, a, a verse in Matthew's gospel as well, Matthew chapter 12, that, that could be interpreted as declaring that for demons, it'd be far more preferable to have a body. Having said that, I think it's very interesting, though, how many moderns react to the story of the pigs. How many of us react? Uh, you know, it's almost like, you know, we're so concerned for the pigs. I think we have to remember a few things, though. We have to remember, first of all, that there was no society for the prevention of cruelty to animals in the first century. Not to mention, pigs were not very well liked in the first century, especially among the Jewish people. You have to keep in mind that it was just maybe just a little over 100 years before this that many Jews were forced to eat swine's flesh, what they called it, swine's flesh, go against the law of Moses or suffer martyrdom in the Maccabean period. And many of them chose not to do it. They chose to be martyred. Garland compares this event for moderns or to moderns observing time or observing the destruction of a pack of plague-carrying rats or a nest of venomous snakes. Okay, well, 2,000 of those could die. That's no problem. Well, the Jewish people, this whole scene would make them actually really uncomfortable. Pigs, pig farmers, graveyards, unclean spirits. But I would also point you to the, the point, you know, why pigs, you know, the text also says it was the demons who did this to the pigs. However, I will agree with one ancient commentator. His name was Jerome, a church father. Jerome, when dealing with the pigs, made this case, he said that the pigs were necessary. And Jerome stressed that no one would have believed so many demons came out of the man unless a similarly large number of swine had been afflicted by the demons. And so that's why pigs. Now it's going to be obvious. And these pigs just, they, they ran down this hill and they just all drowned. So then what happened, the, the other question I ask is, what happened to the demons? What happened to the demons? Well, I think, you know, there are different theories but what happened to demons? I don't know that we can know for sure from the text. Some people think the demons drowned too. I don't think that's the best answer. Maybe that they were homeless now and free to roam around, which would not have been their desire. Or maybe that when the pigs died, they're assigned to the sea or assigned to the pit, bottomless pit. The text does not tell us exactly what happened. I think it's probably that they didn't get their way. Yeah, it's just like Jesus, right? You want to go where? Want to go in the pigs? Okay, go ahead. Destruction. Regardless here, Jesus is victorious over the horde of demons, and the man is set free. Before we go farther in this story, I want to draw your attention to the fact that Jesus is a powerful liberator. He is a powerful liberator. We sang about it on all the songs. My chains fell off. He freed this man from more than 2,000 demons who were tormenting him. 
And I ask you, what is it in your life from which you desire that Jesus would free you? Perhaps you don't have 2,000 demons, but maybe you've been dominated by a host of sins and lusts. What sin has defeated you? Say this, if Jesus can heal a man like this, he can free anyone through the power of the Spirit of God. Perhaps you are a father here today caught in an enslaving sin, anger, lust, passivity. Don't lead your family to Christ. Jesus can help you. He can deliver you from your own sins. Think of this man, figure of a human being all cut up and torturing himself and enslaved. And one day Jesus came across the sea. He came across the sea and he changed this man, not just physically, but spiritually. He can do that for any person here. Another point of application I ask is, what has someone done to you that has devastated to you? Perhaps it's not 2,000 demons, but it's 2,000 ways you could write down on paper that someone has wronged you or hurt you and changed your life forever. May I say, Jesus, the powerful liberator, can rescue you from those feelings and thoughts as well. But we need to move on. So we've seen a confrontation where demons beg Jesus. But the demons are not the only ones to beg Jesus in the narrative. We'll go quickly through the rest. Verses 14 through 17, we see the townspeople's reaction. Look at verse 14. It says, The herdsmen fled and told it uh, in the city and in the country, and people came to see what, uh, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to, here it is, beg Jesus to depart from their region. And so the townspeople hear about, you know, from the herdsmen who run into the city and the towns about what had happened. And so they decide to come and look at this for themselves. That's when they see the demoniac changed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, another text tells us, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. They then hear a report from those who heard it. You see that in your Bible, those who heard it. I think that's probably the 12 disciples, and maybe it's the other people who came across the sea in the boats that accompanied Jesus. And so these people start telling them everything that had happened, everything that happened with the, with the man and the pigs. <coughs> but instead of being drawn to Jesus, the townspeople are afraid, and they begin to, to beg Jesus to leave their land. Now again, we're not given an answer as to why, why they want Jesus to leave. I mean, it, it may be that 
as some people suggested, that they're really irritated at the loss of the, the produce and the money from 2,000. I mean, that's a large herd of pigs in the first century. But to me, the closest thing in the text is that I can point to is, is maybe simply they're afraid. The text says they are afraid. They cannot accept the miraculous. They've never seen anything like this. They all knew this man. They told stories about this man. So they don't want anything to do with him, and they ask him to depart. So Jesus does. The townspeople get their request answered in the affirmative. But then we read of one other person who pleads with Jesus, verses 18 through 20. So we'll end the story this way. Look down in your Bible, verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So this former demoniac begs Jesus that he might join with him. And Jesus refuses. I mean, this is the first time in the text that Jesus refuses a request from someone or some things. The demons ask for stuff. They get it. The townspeople say, leave. The authoritative Jesus, he's going to leave. But this demoniac simply says, I want to go and be with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. So it must drive us to the question, why? Why does Jesus tell him no? Well, the text doesn't give a clear indication of that. But the text also gives us no indication that Jesus had reason to question the man's integrity or sincerity. It's not like Jesus saying, I don't know if this is really true, so I don't want to put you on a boat with me. Jesus has no reason to question his sincerity. Jesus does not take this as an opportunity to add more diversity to the group of disciples. Let's put a Gentile in here with all the Jews. He doesn't do that. Instead, he sends the man back to reach the people that he is most prepared to reach. His hometown, his home areas where they will know his testimony. His home region. So he is to go throughout the regions of the Decapolis, a word that means a 10-city region outside of Israel and Palestine. As a matter of fact, although Jesus will obey the request of the demons and get in the boat and leave the region, he himself will be back. In fact, turn your Bibles just for a second to Mark chapter 6. I want to show you something in Mark 6. So Jesus like leaves the Gerasenes, this area here, east of the Sea of Galilee, but then in verses 53 and 54 of Mark chapter 6, he comes back, and notice when he comes back, what happens? Mark 6, 53. When they had crossed over the sea, they came to the land of the Gennesaret, okay, same area, Gerasenes, Gennesaret, and moored to the shore, and when they got out of the boat, a demon-possessed man immediately came and got him. Now, this time, The people 
immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people in their beds to wherever they heard he was. And so the next time Jesus comes back to this area, what happens? The people come running to him because they've heard about him. How do you think these people have heard about Jesus? Go back to Mark chapter 5 and verse 20 and read it one more time. How do you think these people in this far out region heard about Jesus so that they come flocking to him? Verse 20, and he went away. This is the, the, the former demoniac. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And, great part of the text, everyone marveled. The next time Jesus comes across this sea, it's going to be a different response. I think one of the things that God used was a faithful witness and testimony of this man. And so men and women, as we close, let me just say, Jesus is awesome. So do not reject him like the townspeople did. Just because you're afraid... You don't understand how someone could work spiritually to forgive you of your sins, make you accepted by God. Don't turn away. Don't turn away in the moment when Jesus would be asking you to believe in him and to repent. Say, I'm not uncomfortable. Just just go away, Jesus. Don't be like the townspeople. And then... Jesus is awesome, so tell people about it. Tell people about him. Don't, like, just make this, you know, shallowy sort of decision that you've made before. You know, well, maybe one of these days I will. I'll tell my coworker. I'll tell my neighbor. I'll tell my friend. Jesus is a liberator. your burden for your, your neighbor, your co-worker. Someone needs to help them. Spiraling downward, self-destructive patterns. I challenge you. You think you know a person. Do you think you know a person who could help them? Someone who could overcome not just 2,000 sins, all of our sins. And so why can't we be like this former demoniac whose chains were gone, shackles off, no longer necessary because Jesus has delivered him. And so he goes about the region telling people about him. Let's pray together. First, Father, I pray this morning for any person who is enslaved, bound by their sin. As the text would say, dead in trespasses and sins. 
I love the one song that we sang, Father, that talked about a single light being diffused. Lord, I pray that you, through the Spirit, would shed light on any enslaved person here today who's in their sins. I pray, Lord, that they would repent, turn from their sin, confess it before you, and believe in the one who can deliver them, Jesus, who came and died and rose again so that we could be freed from all of our sins. Then I would pray for believers. We've heard a story, perhaps we've known it, from the time that we were a small child. Demons, pigs, drowning. But Lord, we could get into so many of those details and fail to lose sight of this powerful liberator who was victorious over a horde of demons and who can deliver not only us, but our family members, our neighbors, and our coworkers. May we be like this man who went around the region telling people of the good things that Jesus had done for them. And Lord, we would pray that our neighbors, that our friends, our coworkers, would marvel at you. That they would be filled with amazement at such a good God. And that you would receive all glory for it. In Jesus' name.